welcome everyone to the 47th episode of New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. What's up, Nick? Oh, what's up, man? It's been a while. It's been a, it's been a while since we haven't spoken. I know, nice. and and uh, a lot has happened as always. Oh wow, yeah, crazy. <laughs> There's no uh, honesty. That's the understatement of the year. Is every time we talk, we always end up. I can say, ton of stuff keeps happening. And you know what? In between that, the producers produce, the hustlers keep hustling, and the big man makes money, because that's World what it all stop. comes down to at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I've been wanting to get this guy on our show for quite some time, and. We're going to keep it real. We're going to talk about a lot of things today, um, mainly about sales and negotiation, but we're going to talk about the markets. We're going to talk about politics too, because there's a lot happening and it's influencing everyone's behavior. But the important message here is something that I'll leave for our guests here to talk about. So without further ado, this gentleman has completed over $2 billion in construction projects in New York City has worked with Hazen and Swear, Nautilus Consulting and Eldor Contracting, along with Eldor Electric. He's a real estate developer, investor, consultant, and an incredible sales coach. From the United States of America, land of the free, home of the brave, welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Marshall Wilkinson. Welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Good to see you guys. So Marshall, I mean, funny story i want to kind of backtrack how you and i kind of met because it was it was pretty it was pretty funny in a way we were at a sales event or a a grant cardone event and i saw this guy just dressed up like looking absolutely incredible and i'm like i gotta talk to this guy as we say here spacked up you're all you're all suited up you're all you're all suited up which is good and i remember you, you, you were in a rush, man. You were just, you had your phone, you were just talking and talking, like you, you were trying to close the deal at that point. And I couldn't really sit down and like have lunch with you, but you said, yo, find me on Instagram. And ever since then, you've been the best person to follow, in my opinion, on Instagram. Can you just wow, explain man. to me, man, what got you to where you're at right now and why you became an absolute master at negotiating? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for that. Uh, and uh, I remember meeting you too. So, you know, it, it was the feelings mutual. I follow you on Instagram and I think you got a great, um, great channel. So, you know, um, another thing of being on the phone is I can't type. I don't, I'm not a texter and like, in a, or a DM responder, I have to shoot the voice message. So I'm constantly talking. It's, it's like my default, but um there's a lot that got me to where I am today, you know? I mean, there's a lot to, and, it, and by the way, it's just the beginning. We're still on the front nine here. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. I'd say, you know, some, if, if we can chalk it up to a few things, I would say probably environment and mentor. Uh, my, my dad is like my best friend and he was a person who kind of like blazed the trails and you know, our business is a family business. So the construction from being a contractor to construction manager, consultant, that's a family business. And that charge has always been led by my dad as a kid. So my dad is a very old school type of guy. He's a, he's the type of guy that the world has currently left behind. You know what I mean? So, so having a big male influence in my life, uh, I think aside from any, you know, uh, genetic DNA that I might have, uh, I think was a huge influence for me having a great male role model. 
So when you were first starting off, and I think this is kind of, this kind of gets lost in today's sort of generation, sort of speak of, you know, millennials trying to, trying to make it big. Right. But when you started off, right, you were pounding the phones and that's like, we know today, the phone is probably the most important tool in the world, but how many times did you have to fall on your face to really understand that, you know, it's going to take a lot more to get what you want and, uh, and build something? You know, thousands. I mean, if I, if you could, if we could just think about the amount of cold calls that I've made in my career, I, I probably couldn't put a number on it. A hundred thousand. I mean, when I first, so my father wouldn't let me into the business or even give me a recommendation until I was about 25. So from 18 to 25, I did everything else, trying to prove myself that I was kind of, I was, I think he didn't want to be accused of nepotism. And I think he was extremely afraid of, of somebody coming in and ruining his reputation that he built from scratch. So he, he's one of those, he's a John Wayne type character. He's a general Patton type of guy. But that's not, there's no hyperbole there. That, there's no exaggeration. So, I mean, I had to literally claw and find my way to get there while, you know, before college and while in college. So, I mean, I did everything, but I, I had a natural proclivity to sales. And uh, if I could just, you know, if I was able to tally how many cold calls I made in my life, it probably be 100,000. Half of them were terrible. So 50,000 times I fell on my face and completely blew deals. Selling anything from like broadband internet, you know, door to door to, I sold sales leads to automobile dealerships. I mean, mortgages, you name it. I sold it. That's the one, one thing I've never life. had. I've never done myself. I've never really done. Um, I've never been experienced or <clears throat> I've never had to go into that world of calling people and trying to do things on, on, on the phone. It's never been part of my ecosystem. So, you know, and it's, you guys are all about people and you clearly, you experience certain things that, especially when you have to con- constantly be in conflict, because especially when you're doing a cold call, it's usually a, it's an unknown person with an unknown person. So there's an immediate conflict scenario in game theory. So you guys have to learn how to quickly break that barrier to get right through the person. And the cold calls is kind of like a game that allows you to build that experience without actually having to go out and do it with people face to face. So you kind of, you, 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 you skip you, you skip that learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nick, the phone is the great equalizer mm. because every time I pick up this phone, I'm the most powerful CEO in America in my mind. And that conflict, that game theory reference that you're making is very true. But the way I view it is, is I'm breaking a psychology mm. and the psychology on the other side is, look, I don't know you and I don't trust you. Mm. Number one thing, who are you calling me in the middle of the day? Yeah. By the way, the timing is off because I'm not thinking about this. I'm interested in the self-interested activities that I'm partaking in in the day, yeah. right? So you're, you're diverting me from what I'm trying to do when a, when a guy picks up the phone. People are deathly afraid of spending money because they have an incredibly unhealthy relationship with money and they don't want to make a bad decision. So this is the thing that you have to crack immediately when you yeah. get on the phone with somebody. That's, that's that conflict I think that you're referring to. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the barrier that you're trying to take down because right. if you don't take it down quick enough or properly, well, then the, the, the attention deviates and you lose them. Definitely. I mean, if you don't come across very quickly on the phone as a genuine person who has altitude, I mean, that's really the number one thing. 
is people say it's confidence. I, I don't, I don't think it is confidence. It's more like certainty and knowingness. Mm. If you're certain about what you do, so you, you, I mean, I listen, I'm a fan of your guys show. You guys are incredibly intelligent and you hit things at extremely smart angles. So if we're going to talk about things that are in your wheelhouse, like finance, like you guys have a knowingness on that subject. And because you have a knowingness, you have a certainty behind mm -hmm. the way you, you talk and that gives you altitude. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, if you can tell that I'm scared or I'm new and I don't know mm -hmm. what I'm doing on that call, you're going to kill me. You're going to crush me on that call. It's all tone of voice, especially on a phone. It's tone of voice. So you hesitation, you see immediately, you can hear it. You can feel it. I don't even have to see you. I can just hear your tone that you're hesitant or you're distracted. or You don't know what you're talking about. So you have that, that game you're playing in your head where you have to make sure you execute purely through your mouth and that's it. Exactly. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, bro. It's, it's an just, art. Just it's an art. You are. It's an art. Yeah. It, it, it's theater. Mm. It, and when, when I coach some of the younger sales guys, the first thing I say is you've got to find an actor, find an actor that you can relate with because actors don't write their own scripts. Like they're not really that character. They become that character and they memorize words written by other people that they make you believe that it's truly them. And I don't want to make it sound like this is a manipulative thing, but in the beginning, you kind of have to be like that in order to, it, until you could become that guy. And uh, you're totally right. I'm a huge advocate on tonality. Most guys are not, but I am. You got to sound good. If you don't sound good and competent, just go home. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the level of energy. And, and when, I, when I see a person face-to-face -face or I come up to an individual, you can see in the body language, the way they stand, the way they use their hands, the, all the little variables yep. that create a, an energy field around them that allows you to reciprocate or kind of absorb. Well, you don't have all those variables when you're talking to somebody on the phone. All you have is your tone of voice and what you're saying to them. That's it. Yeah, that's it. You got the energy by of what you're projecting mm. and, the, and, the, and the vehicle is the tone. And you're making it, by the way, you're doing this calculation on the other side of the phone, like in milliseconds, yeah, seconds. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the experience so you, really comes in. You yeah. got a very short period of time to, to make it work. Yeah. I'm yeah, actually, it's a, uh, it's a skill. I'm a, and I agree with that because I'm a big advocate of tonality too. Right. Um, I've been using that, you know, been cold calling for the last five years. Um, and I have to say like, if it wasn't for tonality, you know, just by the way somebody picks up the phone, mm -hmm. are they going to want to do business with you? Right. And that has to come from that, you know, ambition as well as conviction. But you know, Marshall, at the end of the day, it's always about asking the tough questions, right? No, no doubt about it. And dude, in order to break somebody's psychology, you've got to get in there. And the only way you mm. can get the data that you need to do it is by asking questions. You shake them up, make them think, make them reflect, make them want to connect with what you're thinking about. Totally. All, mm. all, listen, all, all mm. closing is done with logic, Yeah. not emotion. The most emotional thing I could do to you is tell you the truth and be logical with you. If I really want to get an emotional stir out of you, I'm not going to future pace you. Mm. Future pace is a term that's used in sales. I want you to think about being in this car and what everybody's going to you know, think of you when you drive by. Mm. You know, that's just cheesy. Yeah. You know, if I wanted to get an emotional flair out of you, Nick, I'd tell you the truth. Mm. And you'd fucking hit the ceiling. Right. Right. I mean, so like emotion and logic, they're they're cousins. And so to close a deal, it's logic. It's all logic. So in you, my so, world. So here, let me ask you this. So in your realm, the way you go about things, you're very, you like to bring your clients on a, on a storyline that's focused on the macro. 
Cause like from my perspective of like finance and from Dan and stuff like that, you have the micro, which is extremely short-term driven where t- you tend to have more feelings that thrive. And then the macro is where you tend to have more logic, speculation and data that drives your thought process. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, I just did a negotiation training and step number four is the big picture mm, in, 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 in a bunch of strategies that I put together. Now, it, that's so crucial to bring a guy out of the weeds and out of the scarcity, paint the macro picture, because at the end of the day, you're gonna ha- they're going to have to agree with you. You're going to have to get this point across. If this is the right thing to do and you can see yourself benefiting from it and you'll lose if you don't do this thing, mm-hmm. then you don't add time to it. You got to do it now. There's a baked in loss when you add time. There's a baked in cost penalty to everything when you add time to it, with your health, with paying your bills, with your money, with making the right decision with your company. So at a macro level, these concepts are extremely powerful. You, they, must be, they must be portrayed. And, and I think one of the issues is, is people get into the weeds with their presentation and they need to kind of pull themselves out a little bit, be a little bit more big picture, hammer home some crucial concepts, ask some hard questions, and then start closing. In, in my world, when you're, when you're going to do a $200 million construction deal, there can be no obfuscation. There can be no mud in the water. So that my field has made it where, it, you know, we basically play spades, you know, cards up. You know, I, I, can't, I can't muddy the water and obfuscate and kind of like do a three-card Monty with you because we have a million pieces of the puzzle that need to come together to build this thing. Mm-hmm. It's $300 million worth, okay, and you're paying interest on it. So milestones need to be met. This thing needs to get up in the air and we need to start getting some revenue or, you know, everybody's going home and somebody's going to jail. So, you know, it can't be muddied. And so my experience of watching guys who were older than me in the business do this at a very high level, I'd learned very quickly that my previous sales experience was basically like everybody else's. I I believe highly highly manipulatable. Like we were very manipulative in, in the tactics. And I think that's people's natural default because they don't want to face people head on and shoot, shoot them straight and, and, and tell them the truth because they're afraid that when I tell the person the truth, they're going to, they're going to leave and I'm going to lose it. And uh, my business has, has made me be that type of guy. Uh, that's the, uh, that's the welfare state. So in political science, governments like to use control. They focus on the short term, they use control, they suck you in and then they, everything falls apart the moment you go on to the big picture or the moment you... It, so the way you said that, it reminded me uh, kind of connect a lot to the political dynamics of... It's control. When you, at the beginning, when you're trying to force dynamics, you're trying to use coercion or stuff, that's control. Control, you, when you're, you're trying to use control, that usually comes out of a, a place of fear or weakness rather than one of strength because a position of strength doesn't need to control anything. It already is in control because itself, its body is already in control. I love that. I love that. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. And, and that, but by the, by the way, that's the way to do it. hundred percent. And then, and then I guess to tie that into what I was saying earlier is that's, what's going to give you altitude. The fact that you know that I'm shooting you straight, I'm not muddying the water. So you're not the mark, you know, in any deal, if you don't know the ins and outs of that deal, and there's some things that are kind of muddied and, and not clear, that's because you're the mark. Exactly. You know, and so so when people say and they recognize that you're putting it all out there and what we need to do now is just break the psychology of fear that you had of making a decision to do it today. Mm 
If this deal does not work for you and does not make sense, then we both going to part our ways. I'm not going to waste my time mm -hmm. and you need to go on and do what you need to do. Later, I'll come back to you and maybe the timing will be right. You know they what I feel, mean? They, they will feel that you value your time just as much as they value their own time. So you picking up the phone and calling them is not just because you're trying to waste your time. It's because there's actually meaning behind that phone call. Totally. And by the way, I want them to pay me. So it's, a, it's, it's my, this is why capitalism works. It's my self-interest. If I sell you on a bed, I can convince you in a moment of time to do something probably. Most people can be convinced. I, I can be convinced very easily. Um, and you know, you'll notice that great salespeople, salespeople are the easiest guys to sell, which is funny. <laughs> well, because they, they like to go with the flow. They like to go with it. They like it. It, it, you know, it makes sense. They, they think on that level already. Mm -hmm. So, but I want you to pay me. So if you, if, if I sell you a dog with fleas, I send you my invoice, my invoice isn't going to get paid. So it's not even worth my time. I want a guy who it works for, it makes sense to him. He has the ability to pay me and he's going to continue to pay me because I want to continue to go back to that cow, you know, and, and this is where sales and, and, and business in, in this, in, in our current pop culture gets a really bad, it gets a bad take because people are trying to get the short-term buck. And because mm -hmm. they're doing that, they're, they're killing themselves. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of tarnishing sort of the persona or the, uh, we'll call it a perception of somebody who's a salesperson, right? Because there's been all these individuals who've used those manipulative tactics in the past. Uh, I want to get to what Nick talked about, uh, you know, with the, with the welfare state soon, <laughs> but I want to keep it on sales here because this is very interesting. I, I mean, Marshall, I do this every day. You, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I'm pounding the phones, you're pounding the phones too. Um, mm -hmm. Your webinar there on negotiation, I was raving about that because I there was so much value that was just portrayed. I had to just share it with you know my entire following there, awesome. and, and people people were writing back like, "Who is this guy?" I'm like, "You just have to follow him, mm -hmm. and if you don't like what he says, that's totally fine." But the content yeah. is there. I took like four pages of notes. I got them right in front of me here too. So awesome, um, the ice cream man, ice cream man. Can you, Strategy one. Can, can you just, just for everybody who's listening, can you just elaborate? Cause there's selling, there's the presentation and then there's a negotiation. And then we got the close, right? Those are the four Correct. stages of, of selling, right? Apart from prospecting Correct. regardless. But can you talk about just for, for our listeners, what is the ice cream man? And, and where did you, where did you come up with that? The ice cream man is a concept. Well, we, we, first of all, at Eldor, we were extremely methodical with what we were doing. We we're trying to take a company and make it a hundred million dollar company, which we successfully did. And we knew we, we recognized that we need to, we need to put systems in place that were replicatable. Something that we can duplicate. Cause we need, we, we were on a tear to dominate the New York city construction scene. And we successfully did that. Not an easy market, um, by the way, obviously. the hardest market in the world hmm. with the worst margins on, on earth. Um, and the most expensive labor you could ever imagine it's only union worse. construction. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. Exactly. Man. So, you know, everybody has a different role that they play in the business. And my role was to be a, a contract negotiator, sometimes a bulldog and sometimes a nice guy, but I was, I was extremely dynamic in, in my abilities because I came from this, my proclivity to sales, my natural wanting to do sales, loving, loving to do it. So, you know, I came up with a system uh, because originally to negotiate some of these larger deals, 
the C-suite, let me just circle back. Eldor Contracting was a, was a, a client of mine when I was a consultant. And I got them from cold calling. They'd win, in, they'd win a bid. I could see that they were low bidder on a bid. The New York State Reporter reports all public contracts and low bidders on, on public bids that went out. And so I'd use that as my lead sheet. And every contractor that was a low bidder, I'd call them. And I'd say, listen, congratulations. I want to introduce myself. Just looking for 15 minutes of your time. I know this owner. I know the client. I know this particular job. And construction comes down to schedule and risk. So most contractors are fantastic estimators because that's all contracting is, is how you can estimate a job. Union labor is union labor, man. You're going to pull these guys off the bench. They're going to do their thing. They're incredibly trained. What contractors need help with is mitigating their risk on public contracts, which means negotiating and, and the schedule. And the schedule isn't what you think, like, uh, okay, Monday we do this, Tuesday we do this. The schedule is directly tied into the contract. Um, and if certain tasks aren't hit that are published in the schedule, you have to notify the city within a certain amount of days. If you don't, you get liquidated damages. It's an extremely dynamic environment. Contractors are not built to handle this. This is, this is legal wizardry that was put in part by lawyers for the city of New York. Contractors just want to build shit. And so as a consultant, I was covering them on the risk end, which was doing all their negotiation for them and, and protecting them. And so I, I, I got Eldor as a client and we did some wonderful things and made a lot of money. About five years passes, then they, they make me an offer to come in. And then when I came in, they would not let me negotiate the contracts on my own. If you want to talk about a company that is in full control and micromanaging in a good way, that's Eldor. And we all subscribe to that theory. We're all micromanagers. So that it's not good to micromanage to be in control of your company. That's something that came out of Harvard Business Review. It does not work, especially when it's your money industry. In a family business with a, with a $200 million war chest that's your family wealth, you want to be in control of everything that's going on there. You want to put assets and resources of people in positions to win, but you need to know what the hell's going on. Of course. And so, so they wouldn't let me get in there and I had to basically, you know, even a five-year track record of making millions of dollars, I had to prove to the C-suite that you got to let me, you got to let the line out and let me do this for you. And so in order to do that, I had to come up with a playbook and my negotiation strategy and the sequence of which I do things. The reason why it was so detailed in that masterclass is because that was a playbook that I wrote six years ago. And sold that to the C-suite until eventually I became a C-suite guy. Um, so the ice cream man came from that. I needed, I needed some sort of play that we can run and explain my tactic on, on trying to get in prior to the flip of power on a negotiation. And so that is the ice cream man. The ice cream man is essentially in any single deal, there is power. Both parties have power in a deal, but at different times. And when you're trying to buy something or you're going to build a project for an owner, the owner has all the power at that point because they can tell you, no, you don't get the deal. I'm going with someone else. Or if you're trying to buy a piece of real estate, the owner could say, listen, mate, we're going to go with somebody else. Good luck. So the power lies with them. After they make a commitment to you, there's a flip of power that occurs, especially with construction. Once you make the decision to go with me and we start contract red line talks 
and everybody recognized that we were the low bidder or we were the person that was awarded the project and I have a notice to proceed, it's over at that point. All the other contractors went away. They went on something else. Now, essentially, I have you, I hold you hostage because you've made a commitment to me to build this project. And I've started mobilizing people on site. So now, you know, and we pulled permits. So we're married now. And so the, my entire strategy was to get to that point. So I play the ice cream man. And this is a really controversial thing. People might think this is manipulative, but it's not. I'm not going to be, you got to remember when, it, when you receive a contract from another party, it's completely barred. If you're in receipt of a contract, that contract is not fair. It is completely barbed and filled with terms that are lopsided to their favor. They're just hoping you sign it. Makes sense. Right? So in order, in order for me to get in, at least get into a position where I can, I can try to navigate a 360 win to the best of my ability and mitigate our risk against some extremely onerous um, terms in a contract, then I have to play the ice cream man. I have to tell them I'm going to sign the contract. Everything that they want, that they put in the specifications, I'm going to deliver them. It's included in my bid. I looked at all the drawings, and from what I could see right now, I don't see any change orders. I think this could be, this could be constructed the way it currently is at its, construct, at its current budget, and uh, and the schedule is fine, and the notice requirements are fine, and and there's a whole bunch of other details about a contract that are set to kill a contractor that that he will have to negotiate. But in the beginning, I cannot tell them that. If I tell them that, I'll not get the work. I need the work. We have a hundred. We have, you know, we 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 had a hundred people working for. We we had a staff of hundred people. That's a lot for an electrical yeah. contractor. That's a lot. Payroll. And uh, you have to feed the machine. So the ice cream man is strategy one. It's it's the way to get in there. And you know, like for example, like I, I'm in I'm in financial I'm in capital markets financial services. So I mean, it is it is a little bit of a different sale, right? But when you when you are in a market that is very competitive. Right. And guys are willing to cut throat just to get a deal. You got to be sharp as a tack. Right. Yeah. And that is probably one of the biggest takeaways and just selling in general is if you're not, you know, if you're not on point, if you're not practicing every day, if you're not role playing, if you're not drilling it down before you're actually getting on the phone and calling people, you're going to get eaten alive. Right. You're going to get killed. But by the way, you know, uh, uh, we are the best solution. And so I would imagine that you, what you guys do at Peterson is the best solution. And so because I'm convicted that this is the best solution, I'm completely okay with, with the ice cream man strategy to get in in the beginning. If I knew that we, were, that we weren't going to be, we were in over our head, this is a way bigger project than we could even do. And that we weren't the competent party and the best solution for the owner, the client at that time, then I wouldn't do that. Right. The only reason why we, 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 I came up with that strategy is because I recognize that they don't even know. The guys that are running the project, the C, like this is all done by committee. Yeah. You know, so all the guys in the committee who are, are going to award a contract, they don't even know the terms that are in that contract. <laughs> and, and that's why when you, when you start your negotiation, they start, I mean, you'll notice, I mean, you, you haven't been in it, but the truth is, is that, the committee will start going, oh, yeah, that's absolutely absurd. No problem. Oh, yeah, we agree to that. They start ticking the boxes because they recognize this thing is a city contract is so barbed 
it's so lopsided to the city. So it's, it's almost like something that has to be done. It's not manipulative. It's not done cloak and dagger, but it's a way to make them feel very comfortable with you. And you're selling your competency at this point. So then you could come back and negotiate the contract and try to get a 360 win. Yeah. Cause you also, it also shows a very strong understanding of your space. I mean, that's another thing of being, I don't want to call it like yes. authority, an authority figure, but when you are an authority in your space, people want to do business with you because they know at the end of the day that there's no bullshit. You're not yes. going to cut them through it. You're going to tell them how it is. And you know, at the end of the day, you're going to, you're, you're, you're going to get the job done, right? Do whatever Absolutely. Takes, they right? want to do business with an expert, man. Yeah. Totally. See, the best, the best things I've always seen is people that being direct and open is, is huge. And also when people are fully aware of that, the individual they're about to engage with is also aware of their risks, both on their side and on the other person's side. So if they're conscious of that, you're more, you, you feel less fear because you know that they're conscious of the fears that you also have. If you're engaging with an individual and need another player that is not being, that is not showing that they're conscious of those risks. Well, my fear is not going to dissipate. You're going to keep me in that same space and that same yeah. mindset of head. So confidence portrays a certain level showing you understand and showing you understands the risks associated with the, the contracts or whatever the deal may be. It paints the macro picture. Now I know that I can move forward. And if there is a risk or a scenario that gets triggered that requires us to attack it, well, I know that you're aware of it and that you're willing to attack it. And I'm there with you. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, exactly. Because the whole, the whole thing is to work in a spirit of cooperation as a team 100%. to build something. Yeah. Capitalism, the principles of capitalism. Totally. So as long as we understand that macro, mm. my intention is to sign any contract you guys send to me, as long as it's fair. And as long as it works in a spirit of cooperation. Of course. So, it, so if it doesn't, then expect me to come back with some things that I think might be showstoppers, some things I, I, might, I might not lock, but I might be malleable on. And that's how you tee it up. It's huge, man. Mm. Oh, it's huge. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very delicate, it's like puppeteering a little bit. It's very delicate with the little strings here and there. Ex extremely. It's an extreme. And one of the biggest things that you need to, to develop when you're negotiating these type of deals is your EQ. Huge. I can't even like it's something huge. you just got. It's I, 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 sorry to interrupt, but it's just like there business is about people. Mm -hmm. right? And if you can't read a room, if you can't read the guy that's in front of you, it's a little different now with Zoom and, and stuff like that because yeah. everyone's working <laughs> virtually now. There's an added layer of being physically in the room with somebody where you can kind of feel the aura and you know exactly where you're at, right? No question. No question. You know, you, you will see, and I, this is a crude analogy that I use, but I, I say it all the time as I came up hearing it. You have to know when to pet the dog and when to beat the dog. And so when you know, you, you can tell you're up against another alpha bulldog type of guy. You don't want to lock horns with him. No. You don't, you want to let him exert all his energy. You want him to huff and puff and you want to, you want to pet that dog. When you can smell weakness, that's when you want to, that's when you want to be the bulldog because when you can smell weak, weakness on the other side, that's when you want to redline because you want to get everything you can. And then, and then some, which is what is happening in my country. <laughs> we'll get to that later, I guess. <laughs> well, 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 I love well, this stuff because it's like game theory, you know, it's like a chess. It's all about understanding at what point in time do I execute certain strategies based on certain openings or certain plays that the opponent plays. It's game theory. So I yes. you guys talking about this stuff, it shows me how much you guys you guys work in a realm of game theory. 
but you'd be great at it because your your mind is already analytical to that point. Now, what we're talking about now is totally different than cold calling, which you said you haven't done. Yes, haven't I, had that, that has, no, nothing I've really done. No. But to sit down and negotiate, you already have that type of mind. I think that if you learn some concepts in a sequence that's been proven and you and you adopted it, I think you'd be a great negotiator. And it's cool. You I understand like see, that. I like seeing people who develop their own theories too, because it shows a comprehension, a level of comprehension that they have a, they have a process that they can know how to follow and that they yeah. can execute. And that, like you said, that could be repeated. So if I know that there's a pattern that works, if I want to deviate from it a little bit later on myself, that's up to me to figure out later on. But at least I have a, a structured pattern that I can work off of. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then you tune it to your own personality mm -hmm. and your own strengths. It's your own frequency. Exactly. Yeah. No question about it. Your default is going to be different than my default. And so when I, when I rely on my default, it might be something else. And so mm -hmm. you know, it, it's like playing, I'm a guitar player. And so the best thing for me to do is learn how to play, you know, a Stevie Ray Vaughan song. But then after I learn all the chops and understand why he's moving in, in and out of what scales, when I play, you know, it's going to be my own flavor. I'm not going to regurgitate Steve Ray Vaughan, but he was a great blueprint and a guide for me, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. That's, what, that's basically what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a mentor type of the same principles of what a mentor should do. Yeah, totally. Spe speaking of mentors, um, I think everybody should have one. There's no question about that. It doesn't matter who it is in particular, but obviously your, your, your father was, was a good mentor to you. Um, Absolutely. You know, my, my mom is my mom is my best mentor. She's like my best friend. So there's certain things that I like to ask and she knows a lot more than, you know, most, most people would think. So sure. is there an other, is, is there another mentor outside that you just like went all in, in and just like took it to another level? And then you've actually seen progress as a result of that. Let me tell you, everyone I come across is a mentor to me. Nice. If that, like if that, that makes sense. I like, I like that. Yeah. One of the, yeah, dude, a closed mind ain't going to grow. Of course. You can't know it all. Right. And, and I'll, t and I want to give credit to, to, to some of these guys, because in my business, the reason why I was able to excel, listen, I'm 39. So, you know, in my late twenties and early thirties is when I'm cooking with gas and, and I'm, I'm snapping necks. And the reason why I was able to do that is because the older men that were in front of me gave me a lane and helped me. You know, it wasn't, uh, no man is an island. And, and a lot of times in the beginning, like, especially when I was at Hazen, um, I was gunning and it's extremely aggressive because I wanted to make it. And I also wanted, I wanted the Wilkinson name to be a dominant name in the game. And the men, this is a, a male dominated business. And, you know, there are some women in it on the engineering side. But if you walk on a construction site on a public works trailer, it's all men. And, and the men, these are old timers because listen, kids our age, guys our age and guys your age, they don't go into my business. So I didn't have any direct peer competition. The guys that I was competing against were all 40, 50 year old men with families that came out of the golden era of engineering in the 60s in America. So, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, they were on the tail end of their career and, and they, they not only gave me a lane and saw where my talents were, but they also protected me when I screwed up. So they never sold me out to the client. They never sold me out to the owner. Nobody ever made me look or feel like an idiot in a, in a meeting. 
I remember my uh, Pietro Palmari is a guy who was the resident engineer on my first deal. My first deal was $300 million, by the way. It's a monster project. Nice. And I was integral in that deal. And he was the head guy there. The buck stopped with him. And I brought him live many times on Instagram. His Instagram handle is Sutrium. He's a great guy. He, he could have suppressed me because all of the responsibility went to him on that project. I had a lane of responsibility, which was negotiating contracts with the contractors and protecting the risk of the city at this point on that end of the world. And Hazen was a consultant for the city of New York. But at the end of the day, it was his show. But he let me grow my lane because he saw the importance of it. He saw some of my skills and I would make mistakes in the beginning. You don't know what you don't know. And he would cover for the mistakes and he'd take the beating for me. And I'm not, I'm not expecting anybody to do that, but it was that type of the cloth that these guys were built from that gave me the opportunity to then catapult to where I ended up being, which they never were able to get to those heights because they, the, the ingredient that those men were missing was salesmanship. Mm -hmm. They couldn't negotiate and they could not sell, mm -hmm. but they were fantastic engineers, construction men. They could build anything. And I can build stuff, but I'm not really a builder. I'm more of a sales guy. So, you know, I want those guys I want to give a shout out to because they're really my mentors. Because the game that I have today, some of it is natural, but, you know, a lot of it is stolen. I stole my game from, a, from many men that came before me. I saw what I liked and what was working, and I adapted it. And, and, those guys were all my mentors. You know, there's like, too many to mention, but it's like Bruce Lee's concept: be like water. You know, yeah. whatever. It, he was a mixed martial artist by definition. One of the originals. Him, it was whatever worked for whatever environment I'm in. I will apply that. It doesn't matter. I don't care if you just specialize in that. In this environment, I might use a bit of what you have and a bit of someone else's thing. You pick and choose. Totally. Be like water. Flex. Be flexible to your environment. Because the end result is what matters. We want to win. Exactly. And, and so, so, you know, just to answer your question and generally, those guys are all my mentors. Every, you guys are my mentor. I mean, I'm going to learn from you, Dan, I'm going to learn from you, Nick. And if I could, if you guys have a word track or a nugget that makes sense to me, I'm stealing it. And I'm by the way, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. No, I just want, I just want the listeners to be clear. There's actually nothing wrong with that because, you know, if it's working exactly. and you're getting success doing it, yeah, it's you're not stealing it. You're taking it. You're applying it. You're you're using your own way to do it. And yeah, it, right. I'm not passing it off as mine, it, but it's it, going to help me benefit me. It, exactly. But it's a compliment yeah. also to the to guy me, or the yeah. gal that came before that. Right. So there's nothing no question about it. There's nothing Plus, wrong with that. If you if you live in a if, like if you live in a realm where you're 100 percent individualistic, you may as well go live on an island. But if you live in a realm where you want the ecosystem to thrive, then you want people to adopt behaviors and concepts that work, because then if they do well, then that'll amplify back onto you as well. So the, the, collect, the collective amplification of good behaviors rippling outwards is something you want a good capitalistic ecosystem to adopt. So it, it's a good behavioral framework to have as an individual. Absolutely. Totally. And then, and then more specifically to kind of answer that question, I, I will say that Greg Cardone was a big mentor to me. I have a personal friendship and relationship with him that most people that follow him and, and don't necessarily get, get to. And uh, he's been a great help for me um, on the psychology side of things, because I mean, what, what really can Grant teach me about construct, construction, right? 
but he can he can really help clarify some major macro points. Getting back to your point, Nick, the macro, dude, the macro is everything. Yeah, the macro is everything. Listen, complicated and sophisticated stuff is very interesting, but the macro paints a simple picture that's easy to understand, and that's really what matters because that's what works. I, I always say that the macro creates alignment with your micro. So if you behave, if you purely behave based on micro, then you're going off of short-term emotions. So you're, you're more likely to, uh, to experience chaos in your behavior because you don't know where the purpose behind your actions are. But when you have a top-down approach, starting the macro picture, then you can say, okay, well, what actions do I need to take to be as efficient as possible to ensure that that outcome is guaranteed? So the top-down macro approach, that's why I always, that's why I fell in love with the macro world is because it gives you clarity to how you behave as an individual with whatever you're trying to engage with. Perfect, perfectly said. So true. And I use that and I wield that as my tool every day in, in selling and negotiating the macro. Macro is the key. Yep. It's a good little segue into to what's been going on right now because sales is great. And if you can get the contract, you're a beast, right? And the saying yeah. is I'll always, always be closing, but I let, let's talk about the macro real quickly. Um, yeah. You, you, you grew up in New York, right? Yep. You're born, born and raised yep. in New York. Um, last year you decided to pack it all up, drive across country, move to Arizona. Why, yeah. why did you do that? And well, I, I'm probably going to snowbird in my mind. I'm thinking I'm going to snowbird, but I had to get out of New York. Um, New York is, it's not the same. It's not the city that I remember, but not the city that I remember for the good. You know, it's, it's turning into a city that I don't like it's turning bad and it doesn't reflect any of the, the philosophies that, you know, I hold true and dear. And, and by the way, were the philosophies that made the city great in which I came up in. It's, the landscape has completely changed and it's because of politics. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when, when COVID hit, it was, a, it, COVID was a massive momentum breaker mm -hmm. for me because I left Eldor transitioned to a real estate, sole real estate development company, investment company, private equity. And, and, and we were working on a close on a $50 million deal, had a non-refundable deposit that was due on the 14th. And the 15th, they shut the world down. Investors pulled. I mean, it was, it was a, wow. I don't even want to get into it. It was a nightmare. Yeah. It hurt bad. It hurt me bad. Hurt me really bad. It, you know, this ties into what Grant says. You know, the worst thing is never going to be on your business plan. You know, it's like I totally wasn't planning for it. And I was just trying to squeeze this deal out. And uh, so that hurt me bad. We lost money on that. And everything came to a standstill. And I'm the only person left in my family in New York. And at this point, I already didn't necessarily, I was kind of falling out of love with New York because the entire time that Trump was the president, you know, if you were, if you had any sort of Republican or conservative values or opinions, I mean, you might as well have been tarred and feathered in New York City. So, you, you know, you felt like, I, I felt like a man without a home. I'm a classical liberal. And so I felt like a complete man without a home in New York city. And the only, you know, if you go to a restaurant or you go to a bar, I'm a social person. I want to talk to people. Every time we have a conversation, it's political. 
And every time it's going to be contra to the opinions that I hold and painting me as some redneck, bigoted moron. Yeah. Which is, which is self-evidently the opposite of what I am. Of course. You know, and so, so I just was sick of it. And also, I, I was also afraid that we were going to spiral into oblivion and they were going to shut down interstate travel. I really believe that. Listen, I'm, I'm totally not a positive person. I'm a negative person. I'm going on record saying that I am not a bottle the glass is half full guy. I'm a glass is half empty guy. It's clear to me that this glass is half empty. It's supposed to be to the top. So if you're looking at a glass and you know it's supposed to be full and it's halfway full, it's not, you know, it's, it's halfway empty, mate. We got to get this thing up. Let's come up with a plan on how to fill it up. I'm that, I'm that type of guy. So I'm thinking this is going to spiral out of control and I'm never going to see my family again. And, and my dad's my best friend and my mom is my best friend. And so, you know, I thought it was the perfect time to just get the hell out of Dodge and kind of, and regroup and figure out, you know, how we're going to play this game go forward because the rules of the game have changed. Yeah. Big time. Big time. Because of politics. Yeah, because of politics. I mean, it, dude, the political game and that landscape is going to change all the rules to the game we currently play. And it's changing all of the financial norms that we're used to. Yeah. For the worse, and, not for the better. No, no, for the worse. I mean, yeah. I mean, how the hell are you going to compete with a 25% cost of capital with, with assets inflating? At, at, at The, the S&P was 8% for a decade. Then in one year, it's 25%. So if, you, if you're sitting on cash, you're sitting on a liability. Mm-hmm. If your company's growing at 2% a year, all right, we could factor your company being worthless in the next two to three years. If we continue to inflate at 25, if the S&P will inflate at 25%, if hard assets are, are inflating at 15 to 25% a year, in two years, you, you, you've just, you just halved your wealth. That, that was never an environment that anybody in America ever had to deal with ever. And it's directly tied to M2, mm. you know? So, so, you know, the, all of the games have changed. And by the way, this concept, if anybody understands that concept of, of cost of capital and beating a hurdle rate, it's the construction executive because our margins are razor thin. They're 33%. We go into jobs with 30, if we can get 33%, it's like, you know, we're doing, we're doing the happy dance. <clears throat> so if we can make 33% on our money, we got to pay the tax man. We try our best. We try our best to use our money uh, in a way that's going to help the business and 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 relieve our relieve our tax burden. And so we do that by buying machines. You buy trucks and bulldozers, bold, bulldozers and tools, right? Because they're all write-offs, right? Then after that, there's only a certain amount of money that you can whack, you can whack up and give to each other. But we need, but because we're a construction company, so capitally intense, we need to keep a war chest. So you end up taking less money out of the business in construction and keeping a war chest because you, you never know when you're going to need that money. When an owner doesn't pay you or they're extremely late and you want to expand and bid another job, but you don't have the money, I mean, you, then you can't grow. That's how you scale a construction company. Oh, so but if we have, oh yeah, go ahead, no, go ahead, go ahead. Just, here's my larger point. But if that money is just sitting there in a pile, okay, and, and, and we're inflating at 15% mm-hmm. a year, okay, then we have a massive problem with this company. Yeah. Because we're not growing at 15% a year. Yeah. And, that, and, and that, that is a huge, huge game changer that nobody wants to talk about except just a few guys and that the middle class is going to get killed on. Yeah. But it's like Rick Rule. Rick Rule says it all the time. We've created an environment where the, the savers are punished 
and the spenders are rewarded. So we're an ecosystem Absolutely. that's focused on credit, not on debit anymore. So like we were saying now, with your fact that you guys need a war chest. So like, how are you guys going to, like, are people talking about new ways to mitigate risk now with their balance sheet in terms of cash position? Like for example, Elon buys Bitcoin. Are you, yes. I, I personally think that there's going to be companies now that are going to start buying silver and gold for their actual balance sheet in order to have as a real war chest, because you can't, you can't hold cash because that's an issue. So cash now I have trash. to buy something else. Yeah. Yeah, well, dude, Bitcoin's the world's greatest treasury reserve asset. Every company that has a treasury has a problem, and they don't even know it. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the name of the game is going to – listen, your cash becomes a liability if it can't beat the cost of capital. So that, that money has to go somewhere where you, can, where, you can, where you can at least be in parity. So you're not diminishing. Because if you're diminishing – if the value of your money is being diminished, okay, then, then that's a loss to the shareholders, so you might as well just do a dividend, buy all your stock back if you're a publicly traded company or issue a dividend, or you could completely enhance your company and change the value of it overnight by changing your treasury policy mm. and taking that money and putting it into an asset like Bitcoin. Mm. That's what you, I believe. So here, here, are you worried about the, the, the selling cost of a Bitcoin? Like gold, Cause gold, if you sell, there's no capital gains tax, but yeah. for example, with Bitcoin, there's a capital gains tax. Correct. So, I mean, I'm, I think that is also a risk factor some people are going to have to account for, assuming yeah, it, that the upside is. on Bitcoin is still there. Because let's say, because here, here's, a, here's a risk factor that I have for, from the crypto space. It's one, it's, it's never experienced a downside, a real downside of the market. Let's say if debt collapses, well, does crypto hold with that debt and it collapses also, or does it hold and it, and it stays and the debt collapses and doesn't? If it holds even in a debt collapse, then it means that it's real wealth. If it falls with the debt load, then it's not real wealth. So that's one risk yes. that I'm looking for that it has never experienced. Once Correct. that once that variable plays out, I'll then feel either more confident in the space or less confident according to that behavior. So that's just a risk factor. So I know, like I know no for doubt. I know people going forward that they have a hundred million dollars, two hundred million dollars. That's going to be a risk factor they're going to have to account for, or also the fact that um, the thirty percent marginal tax rate on it. That well, well, here it's thirty percent capital gains tax. There, I'm not specifically sure for you guys, but if I have to pay taxes just to liquidate my Bitcoin to buy something, well, then I need thirty percent more per se every time I need to do a transaction. For a public, yeah, I, I totally agree, and it hasn't been tested like that. But I think yeah. it, it depends on how high your conviction is on the macro, and mine's extremely high. That I think, it, I think that, I think Bitcoin as an asset is extremely de-risked at fifty thousand. It's 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 more risk at a thousand than fifty thousand because of the players that are involved. I don't think I don't think if you have a credit, if we have a we have a serious issue with credit, I don't think you're going to have. It's not going to be a dead cat. I don't I don't think so. I think it's going to shine there. You see, that's the I thing. Think, for me, that's the correlation. I'm, I'm like, that's my, uh, that's the observation I'm waiting to correlate. Does it hold or does it not hold? Here's the thing. I think if you wait, you're gonna. I think if you wait, you're gonna miss out on a tremendous. Oh yeah, amount of no, no, no. I'm, I, I yeah. have my, I have my allocation. It's just that for like because I'm a very macro guy, I lay out my risks in my head, and then I watch the market, and based on how the market coordinates, I'll then say, okay, I'm more positive, I'm less, ne I'm more negative according to whatever plays out. According to those risks. So it's just, it's just one risk factor that I'm very, very attentive to. Cause then you also have a huge liability risk in the United, United States of a hundred trillion, $150 trillion from all your liabilities that you guys owe. That's a heavy, yep. 
you know, and then if you have a stagnation environment where assets are not really going up, you have an economy that's very unproductive, that's not growing, with a cost of living that's rising, that just destroys the middle class. That like then you have just a ripple effect, and that triggers a credit crisis. So you know, so yes. like there's that's why it's like in my mind, it's like I I, I just want to see if it holds true or it doesn't hold true. Yeah. Well, I I think well. I think the argument that I would make on that, and I'm, I'm extremely highly convicted on that trade. By the way, I, you know, full disclosure, all of my liquid assets are in Bitcoin. I'm okay. all in. I'm all in. Um, I think that, that, that that'll create an environment where it, it surges. The wealth Thank of you. nations, the, the wealth will always be there. And, I, and they're going to look for the store of value. It, it's, it's really such a dynamic vehicle where the wealthy the interest of the wealthy and the interest of the displaced person and poor and third and third world person is aligned. You know, the Bitcoin is great as a, as a, listen, it's surging now because everybody recognizes inflation in the macro environment and the smart money is looking for, looking for alpha. And it was the only place where alpha was, you know, it's the greatest alpha that we've seen. And they're looking for a store of value outside of gold. And and, and Bitcoin is really meaningful as a, as a useful tool because of its dynamic nature in the Congo and in Venezuela and in third world nations where you have the, you have the freedom, the libertarian aspect of it, that it's yours. And, and, and with a $50 smartphone, you know, it, it's, a, it's a self-clearing, you know, um, bearer instrument. Um, and, and, that, and that's, and that's, that's the 21st century-ness of it. I mean, that's why I'm, that's why I'm totally more um, bullish Bitcoin than I would be of gold. Mm. Bronze age versus the 21st century. Even though gold is going to continue to inflate as well, I just don't think it's going to out, outpace yeah, Bitcoin. The alpha won't be the same and everything. Yeah, the alpha won't be the same. But, but, uh, but I think the game, the, the rules of the game have changed and, and companies need to find assets to put their money in because, I, like I said, I'm not a positive guy. I'm a negative guy. And I could see the writing on the wall and I could look around the corner here. And I, I listen, trust me, I'd rather be wrong. I hope this gets played in five years. And I'm that's what we wrong. say all the time, too. We, want, we hope we're wrong because if we're yeah. right, it's bad. Yeah, totally. Like the big but short. If, I, if I'm right, if, I, if I'm right here, we're in, we're in hot water. We're in hot water. It's a serious, it's a serious conflict too. That's kind of brewing in between that, um, you know, maybe many people aren't paying attention to. Now the question is how long does this rally sort of continue uh, in the stock market? I mean, we talked about it too. You got all the inflation coming into prices. I think maybe the sell-off today was a little bit over-exaggerated because everybody was sort of anticipating that, you know, inflation is kicking in. There's no question about that, but um, the saying on the street has always been, hey, like this thing could actually go higher than most people think before there's an absolute disaster on the horizon. So obviously, big, yeah, Bitcoin has kind of been like that, that hedge there as well. Ethereum's big too, right? Yep. So, Love uh, it. I just I, wish I had more money. <laughs> <laughs> Got we're, we're all cash poor, right? <laughs> uh, totally. I mean, my, my dude, the biggest mistake I made was, you know, like, you know, not spending money in my early, in my late twenties when I started making it, buying cars and being wild, because I wish I had all that money back. When I'm lying in bed at night, I just wish I owned more Bitcoin and Ethereum. So, so, so talk about that too, because this is, 
this is the challenge of everybody growing up, right? There's a failed understanding of how money and cash flow work. You know better than anybody. I think Nick knows. I know too. The free cash flow is the most the the most important thing. But you've got an entire group of people out there who don't. I don't want to say budget, but they don't manage their finances, right? They think they got a one-time paycheck. You try to explain to them, hey, you're going to die if you just have one stream of income, right? So like, what, what's your message to these people? Because at the end of the day, man, like when, when, when stuff does get really bad, it's not there yet, but when stuff gets really bad, what, like, what, what's your message to these people? Yeah, well, the reason why they're like that, and I completely understand, is because times have been good. You were you used to be able to work a job and 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 still be able to afford a home and and put gas in a car, buy a car, go on vacation, feed your family, send them to school. You didn't necessarily have to be a macro investor. You didn't have to be a guy watching the markets and saying, "Okay, well, I have a liability here in cash. This thing is going to this thing is eroding by the second in my pocket. I got to do something." You you didn't you, that really was that wasn't a reality for a very long period of time, it's, it, it, especially in America and in Canada. And in the Western world, quite yeah. frankly. It created you know, the Western after world. After World created, War II. Yeah, it created a lot of comfort. And the lack of that comfort, there's a lack of pressure. The lack of pressure, yeah. you don't need to think through things as much. Totally. It's, dude, it's a mental exercise and it's scary. You're yeah. looking into an oblivion. You know, nobody wants to face that, right? But see, that so, scares me. That scares me even more than what our generation is like when the boomers retire and they pass on like this whole ecosystem around the world is maintained by the boomer generation. When they all disappear, the next biggest generation that comes into the playing field is the millennials. They're the next biggest group. Yes. Yes. We have no experience in maintaining in dominating in building. None of that. We all have big egos, at least yes. our generation, the younger, we have massive egos. We think we know everything, but real life experience of leading and building We've done none of that. So there's a risk for me. It's like when they all go, all these problems, they, they get burdened on the next generation, but we don't know even how to go the steps to even start handling those problems. Definitely. It's all, all of this stuff is solved by the collective coming together. It's going to have to be. And I, I don't think that that's going to happen until things get a lot worse. You know, things have to get worse to get better. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, the Phoenix, exactly. The ash it comes has out to, the ashes. Yeah. It comes out of the ashes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, times have been good. So people have, haven't had to be at, you know, on it, but you know, listen, I blame the media. Okay. Because the media should be talking about this. <laughs> the yes. Dave Ramsey's and this one guy I hear in my life who's screaming from the mountaintops about this is Grant Cardone. He's saying your cash is trash. You've got to get your money in an asset that's going to appreciate and pay you. Another person who's talking about this is Michael Sale. You know, I mean, I mean, advocating, proselytizing this message because it, you know, where else are you going to get it? You're going to get it here. You guys are doing what you're, what you, what you have to do and you're lifting your load, but the media isn't, it's stay fat, stay stupid. Okay. And, and, and the government will take care of you. You don't have to worry about it. what you need yeah. to worry about is, you know, what pronoun somebody calls you. You don't have to worry about your future. Yeah, and, and that's it. The, uh, the, and that, Dave, that's the welfare the state has stolen the uh, macro picture from individuals. The welfare state, people don't have to worry about the future. The government will take care of the future. Just worry yeah. on being a consumer and spending your money. We'll take care of the rest. 
Yeah, exactly. Like self-responsibility and prudence, you don't need to worry about. No, it's not a thing. It's not a thing, but it couldn't be further from the truth because the people who are positioning themselves responsibly right now are going to be the ones that can capitalize on, Mm -hmm. on certain events and opportunities. And they're going to be the ones that are going to, that are going to get through, I think the harder times in the future, um, far greater than the mass. And it's sad because there's going to be a lot of hurt and pain that's passed around. Exactly. I agree with that too. Yeah. Like you said, the writing's on the wall, right? So the writing's on the wall, man. How do you have assets inflating like this history? You got to know your history. You know, also I'm tied to history because I'm Jewish and it's a history that we keep. We never forget what happened in Europe and the people who you, who you grew up with as a little kid who were still alive, remember those times and instill some of those hard messages into you. And then that gets passed down, you know, from your, your parents, you know, especially if you have that, that if you come from that heritage in a nuclear family, and I'm a person who definitely uh, came from that. It's a very crucial, I'm thinking of these, I'm thinking of these, um, uh, of these lessons. And it just, you know, you could just talk to your grandmother about it. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? Dude, like the, the history books, man, I, I've been preaching this for like, forever you know and like it seems like everybody's got an opinion about stuff that they just don't understand and it's adding fuel to the fire now obviously um we know what's going on in you know the middle east right now and i've never seen so much like garbage on social media about people that have opinions about shit that they don't even understand and it, like, I, I'm like, you know, I'm always like focused on my shit. Nick's focused on his shit. Marshall, you're obviously focused on what you got to do too. Cause we got to produce, right. That's, that's the end game at the end of the day, but it drives Absolutely. me, it drives me crazy to see that the media, like you said, is manipulating people into believing that, um, you know, one side is, is better than the other. And that's, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, it's human mm-hmm. life at the end of the day, but man, mm-hmm. like there's so much trash out there. And it's almost impossible to find somebody that's just like, you know, where's the reason? Forget politics for a second, but where's the reasonable line, right? Right. Yeah, well, that's gone. Yeah. I mean, look at our markets. Our markets are extreme. Yeah. Our politics are extreme. We're we're in a super cycle of extremeness here. Asset asset are are inflating in extreme levels. There's no more reasonability. No, it's, uh, it's, you remember like in my first book, I wrote a, uh, so there's three social structures in, in the world. There's the economy, there's the government, and then there's the people. If you look at every single social environment, it's all in chaos. You could not find more chaos at any, like at, at, throughout, like it just, there's full chaos in every single structure. So it's like something bad has going to come from that because throughout history, when there's full chaos everywhere, there's a, there's a collapse and then there's a re, there's a rebirth. So it's like, are we are we nearing that pinnacle point where yeah. something crazy is about to happen? Yeah, well, the fourth turning. You ever read the book, The Fourth Turning? No. Oh, man. A, a, a fantastic book to read. It's, it's basically what you're saying. When you have in these structures, when you have chaos, it's because the founding, uh, the origination of these institutions were founded by people that had a philosophy and a culture and an understanding. Mm-hmm. That philosophy, culture, and understanding of those institutions no longer reflect the philosophies, understanding, and culture of the current people mm. due to the time that's that's been separated. And there's no stopping it. That institution has to be broken down and then has to be rebuilt uh, 
in the, you know, reflecting the culture, philosophies, and understandings of the current people. Mm. And, uh, and that typically happens on 80 year cycles. And we're right there now. Mm. And well, uh, that's called, Ray Dalio. It's called the fourth turning. Right. It goes with like Ray Dalio's theory. He goes, we're on a hundred year debt cycle right now. He goes, we're nearing that end of that cycle. And he talks all the time about how expect the chaos. There's, there's a lot of chaos, expect a collapse. And then from that, you can re be reborn and improve things. Yes. But a lot of the issues I find though, is the people who rebuild those systems are politicians again after. And then, so that, we're stuck in that cycle of stupidity because the, the politicians, they worry about the micro, the macro, the people never worry about it. So because humans are not aligned with their future, humans by nature will keep repeating their cycle, their flaws or their mistakes because they're not aligned with the future. So they're doomed to repeat the same mistakes since the gut in, in principles of classical liberalism, you want the market to learn from failure. You want that. But every time the market has a failure, the government steps in and says, no, don't learn. Don't, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Okay. No problem. Right. Take care of it. And then what happens? You have the same mistake another 10 years later. And then 10 years later, and then eventually you can't, you can't keep fixing it because the money printing machine can only print so much money before you do so much damage. Exactly. Definitely. I mean, the only time in history that we had, you know, the people come together successfully and create something out of it is the United States. Yeah. It's the revolution of the people. And the, the, the issue that occurred here is what you said, you know, politicians got involved and, and the people got slowly squeezed out of this thing. Yeah. You know, as far as I'm concerned, after FDR, it was it's a completely different country. Pre-FDR, the U.S. was something different, you know, and, and it, it was there was more liberty. You know, once once we got the income tax and we have a confiscatory tax system here, it, the whole game changed. Mm. It became a government deal and not and not a land of the people. I, the, uh, I say it's the ego. So when government has an ego, the market has to be has to watch out because that's when government becomes the biggest threat. Because it has an ego. Government should never have an ego. It's not, it's supposed to represent the people. It's not supposed to be its own entity. Yes, it should so be it has utilitarian. An, yeah, deal. so yeah. It, it has an ego. And right now, the government egos around the world are thriving like never before. Exactly. You know, and this isn't really a political conversation. This is reality. Not. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah it man, ties like, it to everything. It, it, it really, that, that, that's, that's the other thing too, is like there, there's been such a political divide, especially like Canada is just, you know, I was listening to Kevin O'Leary a couple of days ago and um, you know, he's, he's moved on, he's moved to the States. You're having an inflow of record Canadian people just going to the U S now going to the U S the funniest thing that he said. And the most truest thing that he said, by the way, was just like, the best province to get vaccinated for Canadians is Florida because the amount of people, the amount of Canadians down there that are getting all their doses, whatever it is, you know, they're all yeah. flocking down there. And what's happened is Canada and Nick, I think you get a test that Canada has become a fourth world country. You know, so everybody who wants to be, you know, power to the individual wants to get out of this place. Yeah. I want to get to America. Marshall, we it's talked true. about I want to get out of it. It's a migration situation now. You're having yes. a global a global migration situation too. So I don't know. Like I, I know I know we got the markets that are that are fluctuating like crazy. But like man, like what's got where, where do you where do you think the U.S. is going with this, or where do you think the well, Western society is going with those man? I mean, listen. I hope the U.S. can can stave it off for as long as it can. So you know, the you guys, when you do get here, you 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 have an opportunity because I'm I'm not bullish on the U.S. Hmm. 
I, the reason why I'm not bullish, and, and, and I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just being completely transparent and honest here uh, on this on this show, um, and that's it's not a popular opinion, but I, I'm not bullish on the U.S. I think that um, I think that the fourth turning is here, and it can't be stopped. I feel I kind of I, I feel you because I I kind of have that same feeling inside of me. Hold on, I'll elaborate on yeah. that though. What do you what do you? Mean yeah, it here? can't it can't be stopped. Listen, you know, is this going to go on YouTube? <laughs> yeah, you're I mean, get it, taken, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> no, no, but, no. The reason why I say because I don't want to get you taken down. I don't want to taken down because you know there's certain things you can and can't say on YouTube, and and okay, and that's also an admission of why I think we're so far gone. It's all yeah. <laughs> That, that, that I, I'm going to say something that if, if enough people saw it, they would report your video, and you wouldn't, and this, and the video wouldn't exist on cyberspace anymore. I'm from not. a U.S. company, from a United States company. Nineteen eighty. So, yeah, man. I mean, go, we're we're so far gone. But but go but, uh, but, but go go ahead and say what you're going to say. Ch listen, Trump won the election. Okay, Trump <laughs> won the election, mate. <laughs> I mean, you know, this isn't a tinfoil hat deal. I mean, the all of the enthusiasm was with the man. The guy could sell out giant stadiums seven days in a row. Biden couldn't get I, he couldn't get four librarians in a room. I mean, I, I I'm not making this up, okay? It's true, and, and, man. Yeah, and, and so I mean, the anti-Trump vote was huge, but it, it wasn't greater than the enthusiasm that he had, and so. The, the the election quite quite you know evidently in my opinion was stolen from them. so if they can steal a, a federal election the presidency and get away with it then uh, what's a what's an election worth I that that's what lead this is what that's the chain of causation that leads me to the terminus of I'm not I'm not bullish on America because it's a banana republic. Listen, Florida is the new United States right now, but it's mm -hmm. only the new United States as long as DeSantis is there. Agreed, yeah. And and he won't be there, believe me. If they want him out, which they will, they do, he'll be gone. They're just gonna do it again. So what our saving grace is gonna be these audits that are occurring. If they do show that there was some foul play here and that the American people and, and I, I don't believe that the media is ever going to admit it, even if they're just going to gaslight you forever until until we're in oblivion. But if the American people uh, can understand it and, and really believe it, then 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 we might we might be able to stave this thing off for a little bit longer. But the powers that be are very strong, man. Yeah. I, I, I picture a kind of like a Germany Berlin wall type of scenario where some of the Republican states become sanctuary states and they, they, they make it their mission that whatever the federal state says, they'll do the opposite because they don't want to become economically liable for the destruction of the federal state. Yeah, it, it looks like that, that that'll eventually what is what might happen. The fragmentation of the U.S. and, and, yeah. and in a division. I mean, it's Atlas Shrugged. It's Atlas Shrugged. I mean, look at all the people who are producers. They want to leave Canada and come to the U.S. and they want to go to Florida and Texas and Arizona. Mm. And, and so do all the Americans. So you're going to have states that are filled with a certain type of person and states that are filled with another type of person with a different set of ideology. Mm -hmm. It's just like Atlas Shrugged. You know, uh, Ayn Rand. What's the what's the alternative then? Since you're not bullish on uh, on the U.S., 
Um, the I don't know. I don't have the answer for for that <laughs> because where where can you go? I know. Let me can I let me just posit something for you, okay? Mm. And this is going to be controversial, but let me just posit something for you. We love controversy. I grew up, by the way. <laughs> I, I, okay, good, good, good. So I, it, you know, and then everybody who's watching this now, you get to know what type, you know, the flavor <laughs> of who I am. Um, I grew up in the '90s, and in the '90s on commercials, I remember as a kid there was always uh, blind taste tests. So it'd be like, here's a blind taste test. This is Diet Pepsi. And this is Coke Zero or something like that. And then they would sip it and go, oh, I really like this one. And it turns out to be the one with no sugar and no calorie, right? The blind taste test. If you, if you took all your bias out of it, and I know that's a very hard thing to do, but just, just, just play with me here. If you take all your bias out of it and I gave you a blind taste test, okay? And, and then I gave you a nearly perfect newborn baby. And I showed you a culture of China to raise that baby in. And I showed you a culture of the United States of America to raise that baby in. I think you're gonna be hard pressed to pick the US. I do, in my opinion, um, because for, for whatever free market enterprise thing that we've got going on now, that's getting suffocated. Yep. And our culture, our culture is leading the way and killing us. Yep. So in China, it's about the family, still about the family. Listen, they're communists. It ain't good. What they're doing to the Uyghurs is terrible. These are not, this isn't a good thing. But the culture that they have, their hard work, family unit, nuclear family, doing the right thing. This is, this is China. China's America in 1950. Yeah, no, definitely. Okay. So if you had a newborn baby, which, where would you want it to grow up? There's a lot more discipline over there. It's Confucius. The answer, for me, for me, I would say, oh, I'm, I'm going to go over here with the mom and the dad and, the, and then this and work hard. And I'm going here. Yeah. And, the, and the esprit de corps of the Chinese people. America had an esprit de corps in World War I and World War II. Like Pearl Harbor was attacked in Hawaii. Okay. Nobody went there. But America was attacked and you lined up to get over there and kick some ass. We had an esprit de corps. We, that will never happen again here. It's certainly not on the agenda. China has an esprit de corps. They get two, they get two billion spies. You leave China, you come back to China, you check in with your local precinct and tell them where you were and what you did and who you hung out with. And they're totally okay with that. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but they have some, they have mm -hmm. qualities, yep. okay, that it, if I had a blind taste test example, you'd probably be hard pressed. It's a very interesting question. So then if our, if our culture continues to be degraded and erode, it's going to erode the entire fabric of this place. Yeah. And so I'm not bullish on it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, the biggest fear, I mean, this is total speculation, but you just got to look at what happened to Venezuela, right? That is a parable of socialism, right? Where you had an election that was unfortunately stolen by, by a communist and they destroyed the country and now there's total hyperinflation there. So when you have discussions with people about, you know, anybody about America coming to its knees at this point, because, you know, like you said, the writing is on the wall. I'm still pretty somewhat optimistic I think Good. there is a glimmer of hope. Somebody I, has to be. Somebody Exactly. And I, and I think those, <laughs> like you said, those election audits, hopefully something plays out in that. But, you know, you try to explain to somebody just basic history, like, hey, 
Like, look at what happened with Venezuela. Do you understand what the word democratic socialist actually means? Do you <laughs> understand that. what that means? Yeah. And, and it's just human nature, right? At the end of the day, for whatever reason, human beings as individuals or as a collective, whatever it may be, they always got to learn the hard way. And I know that, and this goes back to the selling thing. You don't need to learn the hard way. You got to learn, yeah. fucking drill it down, do the role playing and just do it so you don't get killed on the phone. So it's like, yeah. how, like I know this is a loaded question, but how, how the hell do we fix this? Yeah, How do we fix I, it? It's a very loaded question, but I'm still trying to figure this out right now. Well, the positive part is that there are a tremendous amount of Americans and people in the world that, that understand and agree that what's going on now is madness. Mm. That, the, that the popular doctrine and what's, what's uh, pervasive in pop culture isn't reflecting the people, just like the market isn't reflecting the economy. So what's being jammed down our throat every day and those ideals and philosophies aren't, aren't an actual QED representation reflection of the people of the country. So that's a positive. You know, there are plenty, there was 70, how many, is it 78 million that went for the big man? Yeah, 78 million. Yeah, 78 million people don't like it, man. I mean, that's a lot of people. 78 million people didn't like it. And, uh, and so I think that there is some positive there's a positive note there that, you know, things could change, but uh, I'm a conservative person by nature. And so I'd rather have it. I'm a, I'm the type of person that buys insurance. Me too, man. Just got my, so I'd rather insurance. have an insurance policy. Good for you. Very <laughs> smart move. Let me tell you, I love insurance. I love the business of insurance. And, and this, I'm a millennial as well. I think millennials now I'm 82. I was born I'm 39. I think it goes to 81 or 80 at this point. They keep, they keep moving it back. But my generation doesn't understand the power of insurance and, uh, and, and, that, and that security. So I, I, I'm buying insurance and I'm saying, listen, if something great happens here, uh, then, then great. But I'm going to do my absolute utmost to make sure that my, all my ducks are in a row mm -hmm. and that my family and my company is taken care of, that I could benefit from the crisis. But I don't have the answer. I, I have no idea. Is Trump going to come back and do it in 2024? Uh, I don't know. But I will say this. I'm, I, I, I'm kind of reticent if he, if he does, because I know I, we're going to go back to the 24-7 puke fest that I absolutely hated. I hated living in the country during that time. It, it has subsided now because they won. And you can't just let totalitarians win. But if, if he if he if he comes back into the game, it's going to be you got to understand, Dan and Nick, I haven't watched that Saturday Night Live. I haven't watched a late night comedy TV show. I can't watch anything anymore No, no because I'm being because they're they're insulting me to my face. Everything that I believe and hold to be true yeah. makes me the devil of a person. Yeah. I, why would I who wants to be around that? It, it's irritating. Totally. It's yeah. totally irritating. Plus it's extremely condescending yeah. and no, none of those people would say it to my face or, or last mm. 10 seconds in an academic debate with me. They'd be crushed. You know. It's all feelings. It's all it is for them. So it sucks. So if Trump comes back and maybe he can do some good things, I'm sure, but it's going to be hell for us. We're going to, you, Trump can never be reelected and the country can't be changed if you don't restrain Google period.
agree. Google yeah. needs to be restrained. Facebook and the social media networks have to be held to task and be and mm-hmm. be and, and be pulled to the to the court, front and center. If they don't and, it, and that, that they continue to run wild in what they do, then it, it, then it, then the show's over. It's kind of like how uh, you know big tobacco started. I mean, it wasn't as powerful, but this is a whole new world of control of information Absolutely. flow. This we're is this di- is we're in the disinformation age. This is not the, the information age anymore. This is the, the disinformation. disinformation. This is the tech era of monopolies. We we the the one thing liberals always said is be careful of monopolies, be careful of state and market combining forces. All of a sudden, the liberal concept that free markets and Western cultures are supposed to always be aware of and be careful yeah. of the moment it comes to tech it's gone ciao forget it yeah it doesn't because they're anymore. not liberals anymore they're, they're postmodernist marxists mm. they've hijacked the name yeah they they aren't liberals and so that's one of the questions i always ask is where are my liberals because when i went to college we were liberal yeah, yeah. but what the way we were when i was in college would be a straight up republican today same here, man. It's, it's, <laughs> in know? Canada, in Canada, everybody, there's a lot of people identifies as liberals. But then I ask everybody identifies, but do you even know what a liberal is? Well, no, no, no. But like, <laughs> you understand that a liberal, that what you are today is actually a fallacy. You're not a liberal. You're the, right. you're, you're, you, you've stolen the name and you're not a liberal. So like you guys walk around with these egos, but you don't even know what the hell you are because you call yourself something that's not even true. Correct. They don't even understand it. When I was in school, it was about rights, human rights, which everybody on this show is about, and freedom of speech, which everybody on the show is about. The only thing that we would get into the nuances and debating is maybe like taxes mm. and some That's other fair. type of governance, right? But we all agreed on these cornerstones that have completely been eroded. Freedom of speech. Alex Jones should be allowed to be on YouTube. He shouldn't be banned from everywhere because because tech censors don't like what he has to say who are you to be the judge and the arbiter of freedom yeah. of speech and, and and if you do that you fashion the leather for your own noose mm-hmm. the day you speak and think something of a dissenting opinion to the current power you're the next one to go it's a very slippery slope it's a scary world for sure man yeah man um, we're, we're, we're going to have to see how this plays out. I got one last question for <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, we could talk about this for We hours. don't have a choice. I know, man. We, we, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we just got to keep our heads down and just keep, 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 keep rolling away. You As don't want to end it on a negative note. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> so let's roll. <laughs> uh, the, the, one thing, the one thing that everybody kind of has is sort of like, you know, what, what, what's, what's a passion, right? A hobby is a, is a good thing. A hobby that makes you money is great too. But like for you, man, like when you're not, yeah. when you're not out there hounding, pounding and just, you know, getting your face up on, on things like what, 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 what tech, what, what makes you excited? What do you, what's, um, a, what's a good hobby that we could just leave with? I, I like helping people, man. I mean, That's aside deep. from running, yeah, aside from running businesses and making money, and I love winning. Everybody loves to come back to their tribe with a scalp, you know. Yeah. But I love I love helping people. I love giving people information that I know to be true and 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 works, and then see them add that to their life, and then and they win. And it's a reason why uh, my online presence is what it is. So like, I remember, I don't sell any courses and I don't sell webinars. Everything I give away is for free. Um, I want to. I want to give away the education that's worked for me. Take the good, leave the bad. The stuff you don't like about me, you disagree with, you don't think it's congruent with your personality, leave it. The nugget that you think is going to work, take. 
And people do that and they send me messages and that is a great feeling. So all of the time away from running a real estate business and away from my businesses and spending my time doing live streams and going on podcasts and, and stuff like that, that's a, that's a hobby to me. That's not work. It's extremely fulfilling. Even though it's not a moneymaker. No. And I, it's funny. Cause like everyone's under the assumption. It's like, Hey, your hobby should be like, you know, going boating or doing stuff like that. But there's no, I'd rather chew on glass. Yeah. The, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with like wanting to, to help people, man. And I, listen, and I gotta working. say, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And the one thing I think a lot of people who are listening about this, and I've, I've, I've seen this for the last like three years since, since we've kind of connected and I know Nick's going to see it, man. You're the most unapologetic person I know. And that is a compliment because it takes brass balls to do and, and say what you're saying. Like it, it took me a while to get out of that little dish, man. So I just, I honestly want to applaud you for just you. being, being a real, like just as real as it gets. It's hard to find, like you say, we're a dying breed, right? Yeah, no, totally. And, and you know, and I appreciate you saying that. And I'm always going to be me. I feel terrible when I'm not me. Like, I feel, I feel terrible holding back. If we got off this show and I held back the fact that I thought what happened with the election and I didn't say it, I'd feel bad. Like, I kind of betrayed myself. And I recognize that not everybody's going to agree with me or even like my style. But, you know, you know, take the good that you can from it. And that's why I'm, I'm unapologetic. By the way, that type of mentality is what served me in business. I don't care what other people think. I have to win this thing. I have to do the right thing. Oh, here's one. I just want to leave you with this. I'm never going to be a guy who's going to lie to you and screw you. Like I'm going to shoot you straight. And, and I think that everybody wins when we all just shoot each other straight. Even if you disagree, you could be wrong. You know, I, I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. But there's less, there's in referencing back again, game theory, there's less chaos when people up front are more direct about what their intent is and what they're trying to do. Yeah. There's less questioning. There's less fear. There's less doubt because you don't need that. That side of your brain doesn't have to be triggered. Yeah, totally. Totally. And then, and by the way, I'm in, I'm in search for truth. Mm. So if you can make a cogent and articulate argument that makes me think and go, Hey, you know what? I got to rethink my position. That's what it's all about. I'm, I want truth. I'm looking to win. I, I have no problem being wrong. It's awesome, man. Where can they, where can the, where can the listeners find you? You find me on Instagram uh, at real Marshall Wilkinson at Instagram. We just uh, started a YouTube channel. I did my first stream ever on it. And uh, I'm going to continue to do streams. I, I like the, uh, the vehicle of streaming. So you'll catch me doing a lot of streams. I've noticed you've been doing, you started that recently too. And man, it, the, the, the setup you got there is unreal. So keep at yeah, it. Yeah, thank I, you, man. I was, I was telling Nick before, you're like the Grant Cardone and the Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> except you're Marshall Wilkinson. So My keep man. at it, man. <laughs> thank you, brother. Nick, it's great meeting you. Dan, it's awesome man. connecting with you again. Thank you for having me on. You guys got a great show. Thanks, man. And appreciate you being upfront about everything. Thanks so much. Of course. Absolutely. Gonna, well, we'll have to bring you on too again. Love it. Thanks for coming on, Marshall. We'll see you soon, man. You got it, brother. Peace, guys. Ciao, guys. Take care. Ciao.